in your Bibles to just briefly this morning to Matthew chapter 19. We've been going through the book of Matthew now for, uh, well, I don't know how long. This is the, let me look, 153rd (laughs) message, so whatever that's been. Uh, But uh, we're making our way through it, and that's what's important. But as you turn over to Matthew 19, you can also put your finger over into 1 Corinthians chapter 7 because we'll be spending a little, most of our time there actually. Um, This is our sixth week looking into Matthew 19, dealing with Jesus' teaching on divorce, his last word on divorce. And uh, he talks about marriage, he talks about divorce, and he also talks about remarriage. And as you know, uh, this can be a very controversial subject to address, and um, it's not one that I do uh, with a thrill in my heart, (laughs) okay, it's it's done with much trepidation and just kind of praying that God would give me the words to explain what his word says on a weekly basis, but as controversial as divorce and remarriage and all that is in our society today, if you can imagine, back in the time of Christ, it was even more so. And when Jesus was speaking these words, not only to the religious leaders, but even to his disciples, because of their upbringing in Judaism and their background, their cultural and religious background, this was a very controversial teaching that our Lord was taking on. And uh, we know even... Today, there are those who make their living dealing with broken marriages and divorce, i.e. divorce attorneys. And I couldn't help to read this one quote to you I found by a well-known San Francisco divorce attorney. And he's quoted as saying that this is a virtual minefield, just this whole subject matter. But he's quoted as saying this, there are two processes that you should never enter into prematurely. First one was embalming, and the second one was divorce. That's from a divorce attorney. And it's clear to anybody who's paying any kind of attention at all that the institution of marriage is clearly under attack in our society today, and we've been talking about that. And you might be asking, well, what can we do? Well, I don't think going out and picketing on the corner is the answer. I don't think even dealing with this world and the political situation and everything. I mean, we should go and we should vote and make our our vote be known. But I think, first of all, as a believing Bible-believing church, I think we need to raise the standard back to where God's standard is concerning the exalted institute of marriage. Rather than compromising or trying to make people feel comfortable or tolerating it just for the sake of political correctness, we need to make sure that we maintain that standard. Secondly, I think as a church, as a Christian church, and not just our church, but in general, we need to enforce the teaching that Jesus is teaching here in Matthew 19. And we're just going to spend brief time here in Matthew 19, and then we're going to be turning over. But look at chapter 19, and you remember here we've kind of laid out this definition of marriage right at the beginning. And the definition that we used was this. Marriage is a binding covenant of a lifelong pledge of companionship between one man and one woman. Period. That's what marriage is. I don't care what the courts call it. I don't care what the judges call it. That's what God calls it. And that's what we believe it to be. 
Now, one of the areas that the Bible is very clear on teaching is this area of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Very clear. But there's so much, so many people today that are mixed up on this subject. And the reason they are is because they try to take our society and our culture and put it back into the text from what we're reading. And you can't do that with the Bible. You just can't. You have to go back and you have to understand their culture and their society. And then we apply the principles that we learn to us. We don't try to change the word of God and make it mean something that it doesn't simply because maybe it's a little uncomfortable for us. And we saw how when the Pharisees came to Jesus in Matthew 19, in verse 3, they asked him the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for every cause? And his answer was a clear no. You cannot get a divorce for every cause. There's only one cause in the law of God for God's people that allows for divorce, and that's the situation of a hard-hearted adultery. And then the innocent party is free to go and remarry. That's what the Lord was explaining. That's pretty simple. It's pretty direct. There's not a lot of gray area there. But the problem with just focusing on Matthew 19, if you're studying marriage and divorce and remarriages, Jesus doesn't go into all the what-ifs. Some of you may be sitting here and say, well, what if I got a divorce? Or what if this? Or what if, what if I got a divorce before I was a Christian and now I'm married to somebody else? And you come up with all these questions. And Jesus simply doesn't address that. That's not his goal. His goal is to lay that statement out there. This is God's standard. One man, one woman, lifelong pledge for life. That's it. And so we have to turn our attention over to Paul's commentary, really, on what our Lord taught. And so if you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we looked at this and spent some time here last week dealing with some principles of marriage. And we basically talked about four kinds of marriage that existed in Paul's time in Rome when he was writing this letter to the Corinthians. And we said, first of all, there was kind of a tent companionship between slaves they just kind of had slaves back then, and they would put them in tents and, and uh, breed them because they were viewed like animals almost. And so they had this tent companionship. Horrible thing, but that's what happened. And so it was kind of like live-in sex. That's what they would do. We don't have slaves today, but we sure have a lot of live-in sex going around. But then also, secondly, there was kind of the common law, and we even have that in California. I think if you live with somebody for seven years or more, you're common law marriage. They had that. They had the selling of a daughter by a father for economic gain. So you had arranged marriages. You had even the, 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 the noble wedding for the nobles, those who were higher up in the class system. And, and what they would do is uh, they would have basically everything that we have in our wedding. That's where we get it from. They would have a cake. They would exchange rings. They would hold hands. They would do the vows. They would do everything. That's where we get our tradition from that Roman style of wedding for the upper class. And so you had all these people with all these experiences of different weddings and different backgrounds coming together in Corinth, which, remember, is the kind of the, the, the pit of impurity, the pit of immorality in Corinth. If you wanted to insult somebody, you would call them a Corinthian because they were just so vile in the way that they lived. They had a temple there, the temple 
of Aphrodite, and what, what they would do is they would have a thousands of these priestesses, and at night they would go out in the streets and become prostitutes. And as you would pay for these prostitutes, you were actually supporting the temple as a religious kind of thing. It was sick. One historian points out that even though Rome was, Corinth was kind of a, a very disgusting place, Rome really had a, a more moral view of marriage, you might say. But when they were, when Greece conquered Rome, the two societies came together and Greece had no morality at all. And so they said that just even dragged everything down even deeper into the pit. It was a common jest among the Romans that marriage had two happy days. The day you first clasp your wife to your breast and the day you put her in the tomb. That's what they thought of marriage. They had no respect at all for it. They mocked it. And the, 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 the Greek influence didn't help. And so you have to understand in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul's not talking to some people with Jewish background. He's not talking to some people who were raised with the Mosaic law. He's talking to pure pagans. It'd be like going down downtown San Francisco and, and trying to talk to people about the Institute of Marriage. People wouldn't even give you the time of day. But here, these people are coming to Christ from all these different backgrounds, and now they have all these questions that they want to ask Paul. Well, now that I'm a Christian, what if I've been living with this person for 10 years? What happens now? And so they're, they're going through all these different sordid questions. And that's what we see in, Matt, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. It says there, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So apparently the Corinthians had so many questions about their relationships and marriage and divorce and remarriage that they wrote Paul a letter and they asked him a bunch of questions. Paul doesn't tell us what the letters are. But it's interesting that as you read through the text, you can kind of figure out what they are. And we looked at the first one last week. The first letter, the first question they probably asked him in their letter to Paul was, is sexual relations unspiritual because see they got saved out of such a vile and impure society once they became new in christ they thought wow all that bad stuff we're just going to stop it all together so we're not going to have any sexual relations at all and so paul has to address that question i've dealt with people who've come out of a, a lifestyle of say they were in a rock band or whatever real gifted musicians, and they become a Christian, and you find out, wow, you, you play the guitar? Why don't you play? Oh, I can't go there. It brings up my past. I can't do that. We've all run into people like that. Well, that's what their situation was, but it had to do with the, the, the sexuality and all that. And so they were totally asking Paul, is, is sexual relations unspiritual? And we looked at that last week. And we basically pointed out that he had to share with them in the first seven verses that, you know what, some people, it's okay for them not to touch a woman. It's good not to touch a woman. What does that mean? Does that mean simply touching? No. That's a, it's, a, it's a way of saying to have sexual relations with somebody. <clears throat> in other words, to be married or not to be married. In other words, celibacy is good. That's what he's pointing out. <clears throat> Celibacy, verse 2, can be tempting. 
he says, you know what? If you're not gifted with celibacy, don't try to go there because you're going to end up in a lot of hot water. But then in verses 3 to 5, he also pointed out to us that celibacy doesn't belong in marriage. Marriage is not the place to be celibate. That there's a mutual responsibility, a mutual respect, a mutual restraint. And then he ends off there in verses 6 and 7. He says, you know what? If you're gifted to be single, if you're gifted to live the celibate life, then live it. It's a gift from God. Just like marriage is a gift from God. But in order to avoid fornication, most people, he says, need to get married in verse 2. Marriage is for most people in our society. And if you're not married and you think that you're, you're going to be single, you better have the gift of celibacy. That better be directly from God or you're going to be in a world of hurt. So is sexual relations unspiritual? No, it's not. Within the confines of marriage, it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. It's very spiritual. It's created by God. It's the most obvious affirmation of that one flesh truth that we talked about previously. So we come to a second question today in 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 7. And the second question I think that they asked Paul was simply this. Should those formerly married remarry? In other words, those who had been married before and now they come to Christ, are they allowed to remarry, Paul? That's his question. And it's really a key question. They come to Christ and they're single. But they used to be married. Now that they have become Christians, they want to know, can I get married again? If they make a mistake in the past prior to salvation, are they stuck with that thing for the rest of their life? Or can they get remarried? And in verse 8, Paul follows those here. And let's just read it. I'll read it for you. He says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Paul's right back to the point. Paul apparently was married somewhere along the line, and maybe his wife died or whatever. We don't know. She's not mentioned anywhere. But now he's single. And so he's saying, you know what? If you can remain single like me, do it. If you're gifted, if you have the gift of celibacy, if you've been gifted with singleness, stay single so that you can totally use your life for the purposes of God and serving God. But he says there, to the unmarried and widows. So we have two categories here. You have those who are unmarried and you have those who are widows. And there's one other major category down in verse 25 when he talks about concerning virgins, those who were never married. So the chapter deals with those people who are unmarried, those people who were widowed, and those people who were virgins. Three classes of single people. And it's very important to understand that or you're not really going to understand where Paul's going here. And we're going to miss the principle that he has for us. So who are the first class here? Let's take the virgins first. These are single people who what? Who've never been married, right? They've never been married. Maybe you know somebody like that. They've never been married. Maybe God's given them the gift of celibacy. Maybe they just haven't found their wife yet. 
We don't know. But right now, they're, they're virgins. They're single people who are not married. And then secondly, the class is widows. Is a single person who was formerly married but was released from the marriage because of what? Because their spouse died. Now that leaves us with the term unmarried. Who's he talking about? And that's really the, the key to understanding what Paul is saying here. We have the virgins. We know who they are. They've never been married. We have the, the, the widows. We know who they are. They were made single by the death of their spouse. But who are the unmarried? Well, look at verse 32. All the way down in verse 32. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. And then he says this, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Kind of a general term there. It doesn't really tell us what it means. It just uses the term. It uses it four, term, four times here in Matthew cha- or in, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The term is agamas, unmarried. Gamas is married. And it's only used here in this chapter in the whole New Testament. So he says to the unmarried, Married, he that is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord. Now, in verse 34, he begins to use it in a more technical way, to kind of define it for us. Look at what he says in verse 34. And his interests are divided. And then he says this, And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. Who's he talking about? The the virgin. The virgin and the unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. So he's using that term unmarried right alongside of the term virgin, so we know it can't be the same thing. If you're talking about virgins and unmarried, they've got to be two different things, otherwise you don't need to say, and the unmarried. So then if you go on and you you understand that, so whoever the unmarried are, we know that they're not virgins. So we have two groups. And now we begin to see the unmarried category kind of narrow down a little bit. And he goes on, and let's go to verse 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. And here we read this. Now, as a concession, not a command, or excuse me, verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single as I am. So, over in the other verse, we saw that it had unmarried and virgins. So we know that the virgins and the unmarried are not the same thing. And now here in verse 8, it says to the unmarried and the widows. So we know the unmarried and the widows are not the same thing. Whatever the unmarried... Whoever they are, we know that they're not virgins, and we know that they are not those who have been widowed. Well, who would they be? It's those who have been divorced. It's the only other option. So when you come back to verse 8, and you've got two categories of single people, he says the unmarried and the widows. Those both are formerly married people. The widows were formerly married until death because their spouse passed away. The unmarried were formerly married until divorce. And so when you go to verse 34, you have the virgin and the unmarried. That speaks about single people. 
some who have never been married, some who have been formerly married. The only way to really understand what Paul is saying here is to clearly mark out these terms, draw these lines in the sand. The unmarried are not the virgins because it's used with that word. We know it's not the widows because it's used with that word. When it's used alone in verse 11, is referring to someone who is divorced. I mean, this is important that we understand what the Word of God is saying here. The best way to understand that word, unmarried, in this context, is that it refers to those who were formerly married. But they're not widows. People who are now single, but they're not virgins. Paul's talking to the formerly married. I believe he's talking to people who before Christ, prior to coming to salvation in their life, they were married, something happened, they got a divorce, and now they've come to Christ. And now they're asking the simple question, Paul, do I have the right to get remarried? Maybe they had married back then and they got a divorce and maybe they were even the guilty adulterer in that divorce. Who knows? But now they come to salvation in Christ and they're asking Paul because they know they don't have the gift of celibacy because they've been married before. Now they're asking Paul, can we get remarried? Can I, can I get married as a Christian now? I mean, now I'm single I'm not a, a widower or a, a widow, but I, I want to know if I have the right to remarry. And what's he say in verse 8? He says, it's good if you stay the way I am. Just to let you know, if you can deal with singleness, that's the way to go. He comes right back and jumps on the singleness bandwagon. But then look at what he says. But if... They, both groups, cannot have self-control. Let them what? Let them marry. Verse 9, But if they can't exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better for them to marry than to burn with passion. I mean, this is God's provision and His grace for those people now single who were formerly married prior to their conversion. I really believe that. That's the only interpretation that really makes any sense here. You go over to verses 17 through 24, and that whole passage is the implication that now I've become a Christian, what do I change? If you read through those verses, 17 to 24, now that I'm a Christian, what do I change, Paul? And his answer is nothing. Don't change anything. If you're single, remain single. If you can, if you, if you can, if you're burning, then get married. But if you're, if you're married when you become a Christian, stay married. Stay in the state in which you're saved. If you can't, then get married. Because it's better to marry than to burn with lust. It's better to get married, beloved, than to spend your whole life fighting off the threat of adultery and fornication and sexual sin in your life because you can't control your own passion. God did not create you with that desire for that desire to just 
make you absolutely miserable. No, he created you with that desire so that you could be married. But you know what? If you don't have that desire and you can stay single, then stay single. It's a gift from God. That's what he's clearly teaching here. And so when a person becomes a Christian, I believe there's a new day that dawns, a a, a fresh start, you might say. The Bible says, because if any man is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation, right? And we have to be careful about stigmatizing certain people because of mistakes they made in their past. When you come to Christ, everything starts over. God permits the widows to remarry, obviously. And here, I believe, he permits the formerly married, those who had been divorced for whatever reason, to marry as well. So whether you're single by death or single by divorce, there is a right and a privilege to remarry. And it's better to use that right than to burn with passion the rest of your life. That's why he says over in 1 Timothy, Paul does, chapter 5, he's talking about young women, young wives who lose their husbands, and all of a sudden they find themselves widows and they're young women. And what he's instructing to Timothy is, is, you know what, don't let them assign themselves to celibacy for life. Unless they can deal with the singleness. If they, if they can deal with the singleness after their spouses passes away and they just want to use their life for the Lord, that's great. But if they're also free to remarry, and they probably should because they obviously don't have the gift of singleness because they were married and their spouse died. And so Paul says, don't, don't allow others to push you in a corner and say, oh, you should never get remarried in that situation. He affirms them getting remarried because of their own their own situation. I mean, we don't want to restrain people and say, well, you know what, you're responsible to live under the law of God and you're responsible for everything you do before you come to Christ. That's just not true. That's what grace is all about. And so some of these Corinthians were thinking, man, I really blew it back here before I came to Christ, but now I'm a Christian and I want to know, can I get remarried or is this, am I stuck with this deal because I blew it back here and I didn't even know God didn't like divorce. I didn't even know God. Our God is a God of grace, a God of liberation within the confines of his word, of course. You have to think very carefully if, in fact, you should not stay single, though, in this situation. If you can't handle it, and if you do marry, then at the end of verse nine, he gives a, or verse 39, he gives a very clear direction. Say you can't deal with the singleness and you want to get married. Well, what is the, what is the direction he gives in verse 39? He says, when you remarry, you can marry whoever you want, but you better remember this. Only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. Period. In other words, only a Christian. Now that you're a new Christian and you're asking, can you get remarried? Yeah, you can. If you can't deal with the singleness, and that's just a, you know, you got an issue there, most people do. Because celibacy is a gift from God, and not a lot of people have it. So if you don't have the gift of celibacy and you're going to get remarried, the only qualifier he puts there is make sure that they're a Christian and it's within the will of God. In the Lord, that's what that means. I've seen a lot of people marry another Christian, but it was the wrong Christian. 
that's not good. You want to marry a Christian who is right for you in the Lord, by the leading of the Lord. The Lord brings you together. So the question is, should those who were formerly married marry again? That's his question. That's their question to Paul. And Paul answers, yes. If you don't have the gift of singleness, then you ought to marry because it's better to marry than to burn. But if you do remarry, make sure that you marry only within the will of God. Don't step outside of his boundaries. Now maybe you're there. Maybe you're saying, hey, that's where I'm at. I'm available, but you're saying, doesn't seem anybody's interested. <laughs> and you're sitting there saying, I, I know I don't have the gift of singleness because, you know. But on the other hand, I don't, I don't see anybody here on the front that uh, is interested in me. What do I do? What do I do in the meantime? How, meantime, how do I handle that as a single person who knows I'm not called to singleness? How do you deal with the anxiety? Well, I put down a couple things there, I think, in your outline. First of all, channel your energy through physical work and spiritual ministry. Before I was a believer, before I was a believer, before I was married, that's what I did. Just channeled my life. Everything about my life was involved with either work or church or whatever. I just plugged in and lived there virtually at the church. Why? Because you know what? I need to stay busy. Because I noticed that when I had idle time on my hands, my mind started to go in a certain direction that wasn't honoring to the Lord. Secondly, stay close and accountable to a Christian friend. You know, if you're a single person and you're not gifted with celibacy and, you know, you, you want to be married one day and you're, you're seeing, you know, some, some anxiety there about your singleness, be accountable to a Christian friend. I mean, don't go places alone. Go with somebody else so that you're accountable. Thirdly, pray for purity and stay in the word. Ask God to continue to allow you to be pure, to stay pure. Fourth thing, don't sink only to get married. That's one of the biggest mistakes single people make. That becomes their life goal. I've got to get married. And it's, that's all they focus on. And it paralyzes them. John MacArthur said this, don't take any plane that's leaving the airport. Know where you're going first. Great. That's a great quote. You know, do some research. Understand who this person is. Fifthly, guard your heart. I mean, we live in a sex-mad, crazy world, and you have to guard your heart. Be careful what you allow into your eye gate and your senses. Be careful where you go. Sixthly, count on divine enabling. Ask God for strength. He says that he's able to do that. He's able to give you the strength to live a pure life as a single person. Seventh, avoid all potential dangerous situations. Stay away from them. If you have an issue with, with lustful thoughts and things like that, for goodness sake, I mean, don't go into the, the local, you know, uh, store to buy a quart of milk where they got porno magazines behind the counter. I mean, you shouldn't do that anyway, because you're, you're feeding your mind bad things. But you have to stay away from certain places, because your, your lust will draw you to those places. And then, eighth, 
Just praise God in the midst of it and be content. Be content. Okay, you know what? I know I don't have the gift of singleness, God. I know one day I want a wife. I want a husband and I want a family. Right now, I don't see how that's going to happen. But you know what, God? I'm going to be content. I'm going to serve you with everything I have. And I'm going to do everything I can to be the person that you want me to be. So that when I'm ready, when that person comes across my path, I'm ready to enter into that relationship. You're not still working on yourself. It's a great opportunity, single people, to, to look at your life and look at your walk with the Lord and really to, to, to bolster it up, to make sure that you're everything that God wants you to be. Have a spiritual relationship when that person comes along in a short engagement. So the question number two, should formerly, people, formerly married people remarry? The answer is yes. If you can stay single, stay single. If you want to marry, marry. It's better to marry than to burn. Just make sure it's in the Lord. There's a third question. What are the alternatives for those who are married? See, you, you had some people that were single when they came to Christ, but you also had some people that were married when they came to Christ. People become Christians, and maybe they're... One spouse becomes a Christian and the other one doesn't. And so they go to this church here at Corinth and maybe somebody within the Corinthian church told them, oh, you're, you're unequally yoked. shouldn't do that. You're a Christian now. You should leave that person and marry a Christian. I, I guarantee that was coming up. Totally wrong. But that's what they were saying. So they wanted to know, what are the alternatives for the married people, Paul? Maybe both parties became a Christian. And they're both looking at each other and saying, you know what, I really don't like you and you don't like me, so let's just go find another Christian to marry. Are we allowed to do that, Paul? They wanted to know. Because they were coming from all this sordid background. And so the question then he has to answer, what happens now that you have become Christians, you're still married, do you stay married or do you get rid of the partner? What are your rights? What are your privileges now that you're saved? In chapter 7, verse 10, look at what he says. To the married, all right, he changes. He says clearly at, at verse 8, he's talking about unmarried. Verse 10, he says to the married. So he's moved on from widows and moved on from the unmarried and the formerly married, the divorced people, the the people who have been made single by death. And now he talks to those who are married, those that came to Christ and they have a relationship with him and with each other. And look at what he says. To the married I give you this charge, not I, but the Lord. What's he doing? He's going right back to what Jesus taught in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19. He's going back right to God's standard. He's saying, you know what? If both of you are Christians and and you've come to Christ and you're married, now you're Christians and you're both married, what is the command? He says this, the wife should not separate from her husband. What's it do? It goes right back to that God's standard. Two Christians, you shouldn't divorce bottom line there is an exception clause that jesus throws out there you know with the with the idea of adultery and hard-hearted adultery that kind of a thing but these are two christians here 
And I believe there's two Christians here in mind in verse 10 because look at what he says in verse 12. To the rest. Well, who would the rest be? All right. So he's clearly speaking about two Christians in verse 12. To the rest, in in verse uh, 10 here, in verse 12, he's speaking of a Christian who's married to a non-Christian. And so what's he say? Two Christians come to know the Lord and they're married. He says, stay married. Do not depart from your husband. Literally, don't divorce your husband. It's a command. But he knows some people will. (laughs) He knows that will happen. So look at what he says. Verse 11, but if she does, two Christians are married, and they get a divorce, not because of adultery or anything, just because they don't want to be together anymore. The adultery thing was already covered back in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus covered that. He's not talking about that. He's saying you just come to Christ and you don't want to be with your Christian partner anymore. No, you can't. You don't have the option to divorce. Do not divorce. But if you do, here's what should happen. You should remain unmarried. Or else be reconciled to her husband. And then he throws in there, and the husband should not divorce his wife. That's literal there. Do not divorce, period. And if you do, either you reconcile with your husband or you stay single. That's it. And if you violate that law, if you're not going to listen to God when he says, you know what, two Christians should stay together in marriage, verse 10, if you're not going to listen to that, and you go and get divorced, you better listen to this. You've got to remain either unmarried or go back to your spouse as two Christians. That's the only option. And this is an imperative. This is not a, this is not a suggestion. This isn't a counselor sitting you down on a couch and talking. No, this is the Lord commanding this through Paul. Stay married. If you do divorce then you have to stay single. But apart from that, you either go back to your spouse or you stay single. That's it. That's why you shouldn't get divorced because marriage marriage is for life. If you have no grounds for divorce, and that's what was happening in Jesus' day, these, these religious leaders and people within the culture were just divorcing people for any reason whatsoever. And so if you're married to a Christian, stay married. If you're going to violate that, you better stop there. Because if you remarry somebody else, then that's when you're basically committing adultery and you're making an adulterer out of the person you're marrying. Look at verse 12. To the rest, I say, now he moves on, he says, okay, I'm not talking about just Christians anymore. I'm going to talk about Christians and non-Christians. There are some people that are in a mixed marriage. Maybe one spouse came to Christ and the other one didn't. That's what he has in mind here in verse 12. And he says this, To the rest I say, and then parentheses there in your your Bible probably says, I, not the Lord. What does that mean? What he's saying, we went over this last week. He's not saying that there's any less meaning to what he's saying. What he's indicating is that Jesus never talked about this. But I'm talking about it, and I'm talking about it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and my words are just as important as Jesus' words in red. (laughs) That's what Paul's saying. So he says this, To the rest, 
that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, what should you do? It says he should not divorce her. See, do you understand the question? They were coming to Christ. Maybe one party was coming to Christ and maybe the husband was still, you know, going out at night and and giving alms to the prostitutes and supporting his pagan worship or whatever. Or maybe the wife was. Who knows? But you had all of a sudden, you had a marriage with a Christian and a non-Christian. And what he says is, just because you become a Christian, you don't just dissolve that marriage. That's not right. You don't just get out of that because you became a Christian. You don't just get a pass on that. He says, any brother who has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. I guarantee you somebody within the Corinthian church was probably saying, oh, geez, now you're unequally yoked. You know, you're a Christian, he's not, or she's a Christian, and you're not, whatever it might be, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it comes to a point where, you know, you're, that's not good. You should divorce him. That's the advice they were getting. So they asked Paul, is this correct? And he says, no, not at all. If they're willing to live with you, let them live with you. Verse 14, look at what it says. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that, gee, okay, I became a Christian, and my wife didn't, but she's saved because of my Christianity. Can it mean that? From other scripture, could it possibly mean that? Are we saved by somebody else's faith? No. So it doesn't mean that. What it means is you are sanctified. You are set apart. That house is set apart. Those children are set apart. Why? Because God is going to be blessing that Christian in the household as they live for him on a daily basis. And when he blesses that Christian spouse, whether it's the husband or the wife, guess who gets some of the crumbs that fall off the table? The husband and the children. We don't become a Christian because our parents are Christians. We don't become a Christian because our husband's a Christian or our wife is a Christian. That doesn't mean that. It can't possibly mean that. But he says, you know what? They're going to reap some benefit of being under the hand of God's blessing. I mean, you can just hear some of the religious people of of this time saying, oh, you know, you couldn't have a relationship with an unchristian. That's just wrong. So now that you're a Christian, you should leave your husband, you should leave your wife who's not a believer and move on and marry a Christian so then you can have true unity within your household. And just the opposite is true. They're not going to corrupt you. You're going to bless them. That's what Paul is saying. Instead of you getting corrupted, the unbeliever is going to get sanctified. The unbeliever is going to reap the blessings of God as God blesses you. That doesn't mean salvation necessarily. It may mean. That's why we're called to 
to live lives that are depicting Christ. So you can be a picture of Christ to your unbelieving spouse. So you don't just get a divorce. That's not the answer. Even if you're married to an unbeliever, you know what? They don't become a believer and you do. You stay together. But look at what it says. In verse 15, it says, but if the unbeliever partner separates, 1 Corinthians 7, 15, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not under bondage or enslaved. God has called you to what? Peace. What's he saying? He's saying, you know what? If, if you get saved and your spouse doesn't, and all of a sudden, what, what happens to your life? Your life changes, right? I mean, you're not the same person they married, right? I mean, you have new desires. You, you want to grow in your relationship with the Lord. You want to, you, you know, pray, and you want to you, you give uh, your offering to the church, and you, you want to come together with other believers and, and, and fellowship and worship the Lord, and, and your spouse is going, I'm not interested in this. you know what? If it gets to a point where they say, I'm just going to leave. I can't deal with your wacky religious Christianity anymore. I'm out of here. What Paul is saying, in that case, when that happens, you're not under the bondage of that marriage anymore. You're free to move on. Very clear. Because he's called you to a life of peace. He hasn't called you to, I'm just going to stay married to this person, and even though they hate it, you know, and they're, they're filing for a divorce, and they're asking me for a divorce, I'm just going to deny it, deny it, deny it. That, that's just infighting. That just it doesn't breed peace. He's saying, I haven't called you to that. God's not interested in warfare. He's interested in peace. He hasn't called you to a lifetime of fighting and warring and trying to keep somebody there in that relationship who doesn't want to be there. So if the unbelieving spouse says, you know what, I'm done, I'm out of here. So be it. You're not under bondage in those cases. Because I've, God has called you to peace. And I've heard this so many times. And usually it's from the woman of a relationship. Sometimes it's from the man in a mixed marriage, a Christian and non-Christian. What happens is the Christian begins to falter. The Christian begins to compromise. The Christian compromises their life as a Christian because they want to stay married. And so they think if they compromise, somehow that will win their spouse over. And, and I'm just here to tell you, just the opposite is true. If you're trying to tell somebody about your God and how he can save and, you know do all this stuff for them, and they're not a Christian, and they're looking at you and say, well, you don't even live up to what you're supposed to live up to. That's not going to work. And that's what he covers here in verse 16. Look at what he says. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? See, we think somehow within the marriage relationship, Christian, non-Christian, the Christian, from a Christian perspective, we're, we're just thinking, well, I'll just compromise my life in Christ. And that'll make it easier for her. Or that'll make it easier for him, whoever the unbeliever is. Because I don't want to just 
you know, really live for the Lord because that, that, that might, you know, cause us to be more distant. Yeah, it might. But it also might show that other person, wow, this person is serious about this God that they call their Savior. Maybe I need to investigate it. What does this mean? It means that you don't have to sacrifice your Christian principles to keep an unbeliever in marriage. It happens all the time. But you don't have to do that. You don't need to compromise. You you live it to the hilt. You do everything God expects you to do as a Christian. And you let the consequences fall where they may. Because as soon as you start compromising your spirituality, you're really stepping into a an unknown territory. Because what if you do compromise all those years and they still don't come to Christ? I mean, do you really think that you're going to save your husband? It's God that saves, beloved. It's not us. You live your life for the glory of God and you do all you can, lovingly, generously, graciously, and you do everything you can to reach out and win that partner. But in the end, if they're not willing to be one and they want to walk away, they walk away. That's their prerogative. And in such case, what Paul is saying is you're not under bondage in those cases. You're free to move on. 1 Peter 3 says, if you're a wife, you, you, you should do everything you can to win the one who does not obey the word by the purity of your life with chaste conduct. You be as godly and virtuous a wife you can be in loving and, and everything, but you don't compromise any spiritual principles when it comes to your Christianity. And if you're a husband in that situation, you do the same thing. You be loving and tender and good and gracious, but don't ever abandon the truth of the word of God and, and feel that you have to water down your Christianity because you're married to somebody who doesn't honor that. That's really a place of responsibility the Christian has. And if that unbelieving partner won't respond to the blessing of God and won't be led to salvation and reacts in violence to break up the union, well, then you know what? Then you move on and you're free. Sounds harsh, but that's what he's saying. That's what he means in verse 16. How do you know that you can't you save your husband? You save your wife? You don't try to keep a marriage together for the sake of evangelism. And one other thing, you don't start a marriage for the sake of evangelism either. There's a lot of that going along. You know, these people missionary dating. Oh, well, they're such a nice person. I'm just going to marry them, and then maybe I can win them to the Lord. Seen that so many times with young people. And all of a sudden, then they're, what they sign up for? Not a lot of peace. Not a lot of freedom to do the things of God in that household, I'll tell you that much. So cling to a marriage if you're two believers. Don't get a divorce. That's what he's saying. If you're a believer and an unbeliever, cling to that marriage with everything you have. Be everything you can be as a Christian to your unbelieving spouse. Live your Christian life to the fullest. And if that unbeliever wants out, well then you know what? You're free. You move on. And I believe your freedom is the freedom from marriage. If it wasn't, he wouldn't have repeated it the way he repeated it. He would have repeated it in verse, the same way he repeated it in verse 11 when he said, if you divorce, then you must remain unmarried 
or be reconciled. It's different when it's a Christian and a non-Christian. It's different when it's a Christian and a Christian. So, should salvation, another question, change your marital status? The answer is simply no, it shouldn't. People were coming to Christ and say, wow, I'm single, you know. Um, do I have to get married now or I'm married? Do I have to get single? No. When you come to Christ, you should say, as, you're, as you are. Verse 17. He says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Very practical. In other words, just do what God's called you to do. If he's called you to be married, then get married. If he's called you to be single, then be single. If you were saved when you got, if you were um, married when you got saved, then stay married. If you were single when you got saved, then stay single. If you can't deal with the singleness and you don't have the gift of celibacy, then find a wife or find a husband. Only in the Lord. I mean, salvation shouldn't change those things. That's what he says in verse 18. He says, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. I don't know how you would do that, but was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. In other words, stay in the state that you're saved. Why would you change your marriage? Why would you change your marriage status? Verse 24, he kind of sums that whole section up. He says, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called or saved, let him there remain with God. So the questions, is sex, sexual relations unspiritual? No. Should those saved after being widowed or divorced remarry? Well, they can. If they stay single for the service of the Lord, they can do that. Or they can get married. They're not called to burn. What are the alternatives for those who are married? If you're married to a Christian, stay married. If you're married to a non-Christian, stay married. Unless the non-Christian wants to leave, and then you're free. Should salvation change your marital status? Absolutely not. What about those who were never married? Should those who were never married, marry? You're a virgin when you come to Christ, and now you're a Christian. What was happening in their culture, beloved, was people were looking at that and saying, oh, you don't want to get mixed up in this mess. Because they came out of all this vile, horrible, you know, pit of a place as far as morality. And man, you're a virgin, stay that way. And who bought that line, hook, line, and sinker? The Catholic Church, right? So they think, the Catholic Church thinks that somehow in their mind that if you're single, you're more spiritual than if you're married. So then they make a mandate that all their priests have to be celibate and all their nuns have to be celibate. Whether they're gifted that way or not is irrelevant. And from what history tells us, obviously they're not gifted that way. So should those never married marry is the question. Is it a less spiritual thing to be married? No, it's not. It's a wonderful thing. It's a gift of God. If you have the gift of celibacy, then stay, stay celibate, stay single. Look at what verse 25 says. Now concerning the betrothed or the virgins, 
He says, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, and he starts to list certain things, he says, you know what? If you can stay that way, if that's a gift of God, do it. Stay in your singleness. Why? Why would you do that? If you're a virgin, it's good. Stay a virgin. Stay single. He gives several reasons. First of all, it's a time of distress, he says. I mean, back then, it was a violent world just like it is today. But back then, sometimes, I mean, people were slotted for certain things in their faith. So he's saying, hey, if you're going to serve God with all your heart, you know what? It's easier to do it as a single person. Think about it. If, if you're going to die for your faith, well, you know what? At least then it's not going to affect your kids if you're not married. It's not going to affect your wife. It's just going to affect you because of the distress of what's going on. Secondly, because of the problems of the flesh. He's saying if you married, in verse 28, you haven't sinned. If a virgin marries, she's not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have some trouble with what? With flesh. Why? Because they're gifted, not gifted to be single all their life. They're gifted to be married. And then he says in verse 29 also, because the time is short. I mean, so many people get so preoccupied with marriage, marriage, marriage. You know what? Marriage, we're not going to be married in heaven. Do you understand that? It's a thing that's just here on this world. So don't allow it, single person, to become the focus of everything you're after. Thinking that, boy, if I just get married, that finally I'll get married that one day, then everything will come together. No, it won't. Don't become preoccupied with marriage. He covers that in verses 32 to 34. He says, time is short. You know, serve the Lord. If you have to get married, get married. It's great. It's a wonderful thing. Don't get me wrong. But if you can remain a virgin, if you can remain single, do it. And then it's also, as the disciples pointed out, it's a permanent union. It's a permanent union. It's not something that can be broken up. There's one last question. What about the widows? So with the virgins, basically, they can stay as they are if they're gifted that way. If they're not, then they can get married. Very, very, very simple. But then what about the widows? We'll close with this in verse 39. It says, A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. If her husband's dead, she's at liberty to marry to whom she will. Only in the Lord, it says. Only in the Lord. Someone that's directed by God. But then look at what he throws in. You know, she's happier if she stays like I am, Paul says. He's still on this singleness thing. She's happier if she just stays like me. But if your spouse passes on, you're free to remarry. See, some people are single and they're, they know they don't have the gift of singleness and they're looking to be married. There's some people who are single by God's divine design for the service of Christ. There are some people who are single by divorce. There are some people who are single by death. So he covers the whole, all the exception clauses here. 
And there's only one category, really, that I didn't mention. And it's simply this. And some of you may be sitting there saying, well, you missed one. Maybe you're sitting here today saying, you know what, I got a divorce that wasn't legitimate. I was a Christian. And you know what? I found out my own marriage when I was a Christian. I was the adulterer or the adulteress or whatever it was, and I remarried when I had no grounds at all. What's my status now? What do I do? You know what? You're a sinner. You're a sinner. Welcome to the club. (laughs) Right? If you've already violated God's laws as a Christian, if you're illegitimately divorced, illegitimately remarried, when you had no grounds at all, if you're in a union that the Bible defines as an adulterous union, what do you do? You only have one choice, beloved. It's this. You confess the sin. You tell God that you're sorrowful over it. And you know what? You stay in that union. And you see how God cannot make sweet out of what was bitter. Because he'll do that. That's the gracious, loving God that we serve. The Bible says clearly if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to what? Forgive. Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For some people who've never been divorced, it's easy to sit in judgment of those who have. But you know what? God's in the sin-forgiving business. Matter of fact, in Matthew 12, 31, he says this, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven you. So that covers the whole gamut. A lot to take in. There's a lot to give out. But... That's, that's the, the discourse on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And I pray that God uses his truth to draw you closer to him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we come to you today and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. Thank you that you've given us these truths within the word of God to help us to draw closer to you, to become more of the Christian that you desire us to be. Lord, I know that in this world, um, things get mixed up at times. People sin, there's consequences. But Father, we thank you that you're a God who's in the forgiving business. God, we pray for those that are married to an unsaved partner. We ask, Father, today that you would bring that spouse to Christ, that you would work in their heart, that they would see a picture of your grace and your love through that believing spouse that they just could not resist, that you would reveal to them your truth. Lord, if we're Christians married, Lord, I pray that we would be committed to the standard that you hold us to. Our marriages are not going to be perfect by any means. But Lord, I pray that our commitment to them would be total and full, knowing that we can trust that you definitely have that in our best interest. Maybe you're single here today. And maybe God has gifted you with singleness and you want to be used of the Lord in every way. Well, we welcome that, definitely. But maybe you're single and you don't have that gift and you're dealing with thought life and burning with passion issues. 
I just pray that you'd use those practical steps that we outlined and trust God to do that work in your heart because he will. And at the right time, trust in him and he will bring across your path the person that he desires for you to have as your spouse. In his time, when you're ready and when that other person's ready. It's not a, something you want to rush. It's not something you want to hurry along. You want it to be in God's timing because it is a commitment for life. So Lord, we pray this morning, if there's anyone here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, we pray that they would cry out to you. Lord, that you would reveal to them their own sinfulness before a holy God. That they would cry out, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me, Lord. Save me from my sin. I pray that you would do that work now. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.